Chapter Three, Part Three, of the Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Teresa Downey. The records of the next year and a half are very abundant in the form of notes, letters, verses, and journals, but they are mostly of too private a character to furnish materials for this narrative, belonging to what she called the deep story of my heart. They breathe the sweetness and sparkle with the morning dew of the affections, and while some of them are full of fun and playful humor, others glow with all the impassioned earnestness of her nature, and others still with the deep religious feeling. She wrote, My heart seems to me somewhat like a very full church at the close of the services. The great congregation of my affections trying to find their way out, and crowding and hindering each other in the general rush for the door. Don't you see them, the young ones scampering first down the aisle, and the old and grave and stately ones coming with proud dignity after them? I feel now that, dans les mystères de notre nature aimée, encore aimée, est-ce qui nous est resté de notre héritage céleste? and oh how i thank god for my blessed portion of this celestial endowment a rough translation of that would be in the mysteries of our love nature again love is that we are staying with our heavenly heritage love in a word was to her after religion the holiest and most wonderful reality of life and in the presence of its mysteries she was to use her own comparison like a child standing upon the seashore watching for the onward rush of the waves, venturing himself close to the water's edge, holding his breath, and wooing their approach, and then as they come, dashing in, retreating with laughter and mock fear, only to return to tempt them anew. Her only solicitude was lest the new interest should draw her heart away from him who had been its chief joy. In a letter to her cousin she touches on this point. You know how, by circumstances, my affections have been repressed, and now, having found liberty to love, I am tempted to seek my heaven in so loving. But, my dear cousin, there is nothing worth having apart from God. I feel this every day more and more, and the fear of satisfying myself with something short of Him. This is my only anxiety. This drives me to the throne of His grace, and makes me refuse to be left one moment to myself. I believe I desire, first of all, to love God supremely, and to do something for Him, if He spares my life. Early in December, her sister, Mrs. Hopkins, with an infant boy, came to Portland, and passed a part of the winter under the maternal roof. The arrival of this boy, her mother's first grandchild, was an event in the family history. Here is her own picture of the scene. It was a cold evening, and Grandmama who had been sitting by the fire, knitting and reading, had at last let her book fall from her lap, and had dropped to sleep in her chair. The four uncles sat around the table, two of them playing chess, and two looking on, while Aunt Fanny, with her cat on her knees, studied German a little, and looked at the clock very often, and started at every noise. "'I have said all along that they wouldn't come,' she cried at last. "'The clock has just struck nine and I'm not going to expect them any longer. I knew Herbert wouldn't let Laura undertake such a journey in the depth of winter, 
or at any rate that Laura's courage would tail at the last moment. She had hardly uttered these words, when there was a ring at the doorbell, then a stamping of feet on the mat, to shake off the snow, and in they came, Lou, and Lou's papa, and Lou's mamma, bringing ever so much fresh cold air with them. Grandmamma woke up, and rose to meet them with steps as lively as if she were a young girl. Aunt Fanny tossed the cat from her lap, and seized the little bundle that held the baby. The four uncles crowded about her, eager to get the first peep at the little wonder. There was such a laughing and such a tumult, that poor Lou, coming out of the dark night and into the bright room, and seeing so many strange faces, did not know what to think. When his cloaks and shawls and capes were at last pulled off by his auntie's eager hands, there came into view a serious little face, a pair of bright eyes, and a head as smooth as ivory, on which there was not a single hair. His sleeves were looped up with corals, and showed his plump white arms, and he sat very straight, and took a good look at everybody. What a perfect little beauty! What splendid eyes! What lovely skin! He's the perfect image of his father. He's exactly like his mother. What a dear little nose! What fat little hands, full of dimples! Let me take him. Come to his own grandmamma. Let his uncle toss him, so he will. What does he eat? Is he tired? Now, Fanny, you've had him ever since he came. He wants to come to me. I know he does. These, and nobody knows how many more exclamations of the sort, greeted the ears of the little stranger, and were received by him with unruffled gravity. Aunt Fanny devoted herself during the following weeks to the care of her little nephew. Her letters, written at the time, some of them with him in her arms, are full of his pretty ways, and when, more than a score of years later, he had given his young life to his country, and was sleeping in a soldier's grave, his sayings and doings form the subject of one of her most attractive juvenile books. A few extracts from her letters will give glimpses of her state of mind during this winter, and show also how the thoughtful spirit, which from the first tempered the experiments of her new experience, was deepened by the loss of very dear friends. Portland, December ninth, 1843 Last evening I spent at Mrs. H.'s, with Abby and a crowd of other people. John Neal told me I had a great bump of love of approbation, and consciousness very large, and self-esteem hardly any, and that he hoped whoever had most influence over me would remedy that evil. He then went on to pay me the most extravagant compliments, and said I could become distinguished in any way I pleased. Thinks I to myself, I should like to be the best little wife in the world, and that's the height of my ambition. Don't imagine now that I believe all he says, for he has been saying just such things to me since I was a dozen years old, and I don't see as I am any great things yet, do you? January third, 1844. Sister is still here, and will stay with us a month or two yet. Her husband has gone home to preach, and pray himself into contentment without her. Though he was here only a week, his quiet Christian excellence made us all long to grow better. It is always the case when he comes, though he rather lives than talks his religion. I never saw, as far as piety is concerned, a more perfect specimen of a man in his everyday life. 
Do you pray for me every night and every morning? Don't forget how I comfort myself with thinking that you every day ask for me those graces of the Spirit which I so long for. Indeed, I have had lately such heavenward yearnings. Why do you ask if I pray for you, as if I could love you and help praying for you continually and always? I have no light sense of the holiness a Christian minister should possess. I half wish there were no veil upon my heart on this point, that you might see how, from the very first hour of your return from abroad, my interest in you went hand in hand with this looking upward. January 22nd. We have all been saddened by the repeated trials with which our friends the Willises are visited this winter. Mrs. Willis is still very ill, and there is no hope of her recovery. And Ellen, the pet of the whole household, the always happy, loving, beautiful young thing, who had been full of delight in the hope of becoming a mother, lies now at the point of death, having lost her infant, and with it her bright anticipations. For fourteen years there had not been a physician in their house, and you may imagine how they are all now taken, as it were, by surprise, by the first break death has threatened to make in their peculiarly happy circle. Our love for all the family has grown with our growth, and strengthened with our strength, and what touches them we all feel. February 8th. How is it that people who have no refuge in God live through the loss of those they love? I am very sad this morning, and almost wish I had never loved you or anybody. Last night we heard of the death of Julia Willis's sister, and this morning learned that a very dear little girl, in whom we were all much interested, and whom I saw on Saturday only slightly unwell, is taken away from her parents, who have no manner of consolation in losing this only child. There is a great cloud throughout our house, and we hardly know what to do with ourselves. When I met mother and sister yesterday on my return from your house, I saw that something was the matter, of which they hesitated to tell me. And of whom should I naturally think but of you, you in whom my life is bound up, and when mother finally came to put her arms around me, I suffered for the moment that intensity of anguish which I should feel in knowing that something dreadful had befallen you. She told me, however, of poor Ellen's death, and I was so lost in recovering you again that I cared for nothing else all the evening, and until this morning had scarcely thought of the aching, aching hearts she has left behind. Her poor young husband, who loved her so tenderly, is half distracted, Oh, I have blessed God to-day that until he had given me a sure and certain hold upon himself, he had not suffered me to love as I love now. It is a mystery which I cannot understand, how the heart can live on through the moment which rends it asunder from that which it has become a part, except by hiding itself in God. I have felt Ellen's death the more, because she and her husband were associated my mind with you. I hardly know how or why but she told me much of the history of her heart when I saw her last summer on my way home from Richmond, at the same time that she spoke much of you. She'd seen you at our house before you went abroad, and seemed to have a sort of presentiment that we should love each other. But I ought to beg you to forgive me for sending you this gloomy page. Yet I was restless, and wanted to tell you the thoughts that have been in my heart towards you to-day, the serious and saddened love with which I love you, when I think of you as one whom God may take from me at any moment. 
I do not know that it is unwise to look this truth in the face sometimes, for if ever there was a heart tempted to idolatry, to giving itself up fully, utterly, with perfect abandonment of every other hope and interest to an earthly love, so is mine tempted now. February 13th Mother is going to Boston with sister on Saturday, provided I am well enough, which I mean to be, as Mrs. Willis has expressed a strong wish to see her once more. We heard from them yesterday again. Poor Ellen's coffin was placed just where she stood as a bride less than eight months ago, and her little infant rested on her breast. There is rarely a death so universally mourned as hers. She was the most winning and attractive young creature I ever saw. February 21st. Are you in earnest? Are you really coming home in March? I am afraid to believe, afraid to doubt it. I am crying and laughing and writing all at once. You would not tell me so unless you really were coming. I know, and you are coming home. How madly my heart is beating. Lie still, will you? I almost feel that you are here, and that you look over my shoulder and read while I write. Are you sure that you will come? Oh, don't repent and send me another letter to say that you will wait till it is pleasanter weather. It is pleasant now. I walked out this morning, and the air was a spring air, and gentlemen go through the streets with their cloaks hanging over their arms, and there is a constant plashing against the windows of water dripping down from the melting snow. Yes, I verily believe that it is warm and that the birds will sing soon. I do, upon my word. I wouldn't have the doctor come and feel my pulse this afternoon for anything. He would prescribe fever powders or fever drops, or something of the sort, and bleed me and send me to bed, or to the insane hospital. I don't know which. I could cry, sing, dance, laugh all at once. Ah, oh, that I knew exactly when you will be here, the day, the hour, the minute, that I might know just what point to govern my impatient heart for it would be a pity to punish the poor thing too severely. I have been reading to-day something which delighted me very much. Do you remember a little poem of Goethe's in which an imprisoned count sings about the flower he loves best, and the rose, the lily, the pink, and the violet each in turn fancy themselves the object of his love? You see, I put you in the place of the prisoner at the outset, and I was to be the flower of his love, whatever it might be. Well, it was the forget-me-not. If there were a flower called the always-loving, maybe I might find out to what order and class I belong. Dear me, there's the old clock striking twelve, and I verily meant to go to bed at ten, so as to sleep away as much of the time as possible before your coming. But I fell into a fit of loving meditation, and forgot everything else. You should have seen me pour out tea to-night, why, the first thing I knew I had poured it all over into my own cup, till it ran over and half filled the waiter, which is the first time I ever did such a ridiculous thing in my life. But, dearest, I bid you good-night, praying that you may have sweet dreams, and that an inward prompting to write me a long, long blessed letter, such as shall make me dance around the house and sing. February 22nd. Oh, I am frightened at myself. I am so happy! It seems as if even this whole folio would not in the least convey to you the gladness with which my heart is dancing and singing and making merry. The doctor seems quite satisfied with my shoulder, and says it's first-rate, so set your heart at rest on that point. I hope there'll be nobody within two miles of our meeting, 
Suppose you stop in some out-of-the-way place, just out of town, and let me trot out there to see you. Uh, are you really coming? To G. E. S. March 4th, 1844. I must write a few lines to tell you, my dear cousin, that I am thinking of and praying for you on your birthday. I have but one request to offer either for you or for myself, and that is for more love to our Redeemer. I bless God that I have no other want. I do not know why it is, but I never have thought so much of death and of the certainty that I, sooner or later, must die, as within a few months past. I am not exactly superstitious, but this daily and hourly half-presentiment that my life will not be a long one is singularly subduing, and seems to lay a restraining hand upon future plans. I am not sorry, whatever may be the event, that it is so. I dread clinging to this world, and seeking my rest in it. I am not afraid to die, or afraid that anything I love may be taken from me. I only have this serious and thoughtful sense of death upon my mind. You know how we have loved the Willis family, and can imagine how we felt the death of their youngest daughter, who was dear to everybody. And Mrs. Willis is, probably, not living. This has added to my previous feeling on the subject, which was, perhaps, first occasioned by the sudden and terrible loss of my poor friend Mr. Thatcher a year ago this month. God forbid I should ever forget the lessons he saw I needed, and dare to feel that there is a thing upon earth which death may not touch. Oh, in how many ways he has sought to win my whole heart for his own! March 22nd. I was interrupted last night by the arrival of G.L.P. after his four months' absence in Mississippi, improved in health, and in looks, and in spirits, and quite as glad to see me, I believe, as even you, in your goodness of heart, say my lover ought to be. But I will tell you the truth, my dear cousin. I am afraid of love. There is no other medium save that of the happiness of loving and being loved, by which my affections could be effectually turned from divine to earthly things. Am I then not on dangerous ground? Yet God mercifully shows me that it is so, and when I think how he has saved me hitherto through sharp temptations, it seems wicked distrust of him not to feel that he will save me through those to come. I know now there are some of the great lessons of life yet to be learned. I believe I must suffer as long as I have an earthly existence. Will not then God make that suffering but as a blessed reprover to bring me nearer himself? I hope so. During the winter her health had become so much impaired that great anxiety was felt as to the issue. In a letter to her friend, Mrs. Ellen Thurston, dated April twentieth, 1844, she writes, You remember, perhaps, that on the afternoon you were so good as to come and spend with me, I was making a fuss about a little thing on my shoulder. Well, I had at last to have it removed, and though the operation was not in itself very painful, its effects upon my whole nervous system have been most powerful. I have lost all regular habits of sleep. For a week I do not know that I slept two hours, and am ready to fly into a fit at the bare thought of sitting still long enough to write a common letter. I have, however, the consolation of being pitied and consoled with, as there is something in the idea of cutting at the flesh, 
which touches the heart a thousand times more than some severer sufferings would do. I am getting quite thin and weak upon it, and I believe Mother firmly expects me to shrink into nothing, though I am a pretty bouncing girl still. Owing to some mishap, the healing process was entirely thwarted, and after a very trying summer the operation had to be repeated. This time it was performed by that eminent surgeon and admirable Christian man, Dr. John C. Warren of Boston, assisted by his son, Dr. J. M. W. Dr. Warren told Miss Payson's friend, who had accompanied an invalid sister to New York, that he thought it would require about five minutes, but it proved to be much more serious than he had anticipated. Miss Willis, in her letter from Geneva, already quoted, thus refers to it, my next meeting with Lizzie revealed a striking trait of her character, which hitherto I had had no opportunity of observing, her wonderful fortitude under suffering. I was at the seashore with my sister and family, when her little child, being taken suddenly very ill in the night, I went up to Boston by an early train to bring down as soon as possible our family physician. On arriving at his house I was disappointed at being told that he could not come at once being engaged to perform an operation that morning. While waiting for the return train, I called at my father's office, and was surprised to hear that Lizzie was the patient. A painful tumor had developed itself on the back of her neck, and she had come up with her mother to Boston to consult Dr. Warren, who had advised its immediate removal. I went at once to see her. She greeted me with even more than her usual warmth, and after stating in a few words the object of her coming to Boston, and that she was expecting the doctors every moment. She added, You will stay with me, I am sure. Mother insists on being present, but she cannot bear it. She will be sure to faint. If you will promise to stay, I can persuade her to remain in the next room. Seeing the distress in my face at the request, she said, I will be very good. You will have nothing to do but sit in the room to satisfy Mother. It was impossible to refuse, and I remained. There was no chloroform, then, to give blessed unconsciousness of suffering, and every pang had to be endured, but she more than kept her promise to be good. Not a sound or a movement betrayed suffering. She spoke only once. After the knife was laid aside, and the threaded needle was passed through the quivering flesh to draw the gaping edges of the wound together, she asked, after the first stitch had been completed, in a low, almost calm tone, with only a slight tremulousness, how many more were to be taken? When the operation was over, and the surgeons were preparing to depart, she questioned them minutely as to the mark which would be left after the healing. I was surprised that she could think of it at such a moment, knowing how little value she had always set on her personal appearance. But her mother explained it afterward by referring to her betrothal to you, and the fear that you would find the scar disfiguring. In a letter to Mrs. Stearns, she herself writes, September 6th, I had no idea of the suffering which awaited me. I thought I should get off as I did the first time. But I have a great deal to be thankful for. On Wednesday, to my infinite surprise and gladness, George pounced down upon me from New York, having been quite cut to the heart by the account Mother gave him. Everybody is so kind and I have had so many letters, and seen so many sympathizing faces, and dear Lizzie sounds, so sweet to my insatiable ears, and yet, and yet, I would rather die 
then lived through the forty-eight hours again which began on Monday morning. Somebody must have prayed for me. I never should have got through. An extract from another of her letters, dated Portland, September 11th, belongs here. I must tell you, too, about Dr. Warren, the old one. When Mother asked him concerning the amount he was to receive from her for his professional services, he smiled and said, I shall not charge you much. And as for Miss Payson, when she's married and rich, she may pay me and welcome, but not till then. I told him I never expected to be rich, and he replied, with what Mother thought an air of contentment, that he said he knew all about it. Well, we can be happy without riches, and such a good, happy smile shone all over his face, as I have seldom been so fortunate as to see in an old man. As for the young one, he seemed as glad when I was dressed on Sunday with a clean frock and no shawl, as if it were really a matter of consequence to him, to see his patients looking comfortable and well. I'm getting along finely. There's only one spot on my shoulder which is troublesome, and they ordered me on a very strict diet for that, so I'm half starved this blessed minute. We went to Newbury on Monday, and stayed there with Anna till yesterday afternoon. I think the motion of the cars hurt me somewhat, but by the time you get here I do hope I shall be quite well. Evening. I have had such happy thoughts and prayers to-night. You should certainly have knelt with me in my little room, where, for the first time, a year ago this evening, I asked God to bless us, and you too, perhaps, then began to pray for me. Oh, what a wonderful time it was! I hope you have prayed for me to-day. I don't mean as you always do, but with new prayers wherewith to begin the new year. God bless you and love you. But this period was also one of marked mental growth. It was marked especially by two events which had a shaping influence upon her intellectual and religious character. One was the study of German. She was acquainted already with French and Italian. She now devoted her leisure hours to the language and works of Schiller and Goethe. These opened to her a new world of thought and beauty. Her correspondence contains frequent allusions to the progress of her German reading. Here is one in a letter to her cousin. I have read George Herbert a great deal this winter. I have also read several of Schiller's plays, William Tell and Don Carlos among the rest, and got a great deal more excited over them than I have over anything for a long while. George has a large German library, but I don't suppose I shall be much the wiser for it unless I turn to studying theology. Did you read in Goethe's Wilhelm Meister and the Beckenneiss Einer Schonenseel? I do think it did my soul good when I read it last July. The account she gives of her religious history reminded me of mine in some points very strongly. The other incident was her introduction to the writings of Fenelon, an author whom, in later years, she came to regard as an oracle of spiritual wisdom. In the letters just quoted, she writes, I am reading Fenelon's Maxime de Saint, and many of his ideas please me exceedingly. Some of his Lettres Spirituelles are delicious, so heavenly, so childlike in their spirit. End of chapter 3, part 3. Recording by Teresa Downey.